Welcome back to Locos Bible Study. This special presentation of the Christmas story has been recorded live at St. Peter's by the Sea Presbyterian Church in Huntington Beach, California. So pull up a chair as Dr. Creasy continues with part two, The Birth of Christ. Welcome back, everyone. When we left, we saw Mary saying yes to God. Over in Luke chapter 1, at verse 38, she said, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel Gabriel left her. And I noted at the end of our last session that Mary understood the risks of her decision. Indeed, those risks will play out in the rest of the story this hour, and they will continue to play out for the rest of her life and of Jesus' life. If we turn over to John chapter 8, the Gospel according to John chapter 8 at verse 31. In this scene, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He is at the temple platform, and he is engaging the religious leaders in controversy. And it becomes quite heated. In John 8, verse 31, To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, they are greatly insulted by that. They say to him, We are Abraham's descendants, and we have never been slaves of anyone. Well, that's not true. What about 400 years of slavery in Egypt? But they're hot under the collar. How can you say we'll be set free? And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. Now he's moving into dangerous territory here with his opponents. A son belongs to it forever. So if I, the son, set you free, you will be free indeed. I know you're Abraham's descendants, and yet you're ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in my father's presence. And you do what you have heard from your father. He's bringing it into this father-father realm. And they say, Abraham is our father. And he said, if you were Abraham's children, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you are determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the things your father does. In a moment, he's going to say, your father is Satan. Notice how the fathers are being hurled back and forth here. And then his opponents say something that is scathingly insulting. Now, in my NIV translation, it reads, we are not illegitimate children. The only father we have is God himself. Well, that tones it down quite a bit. A literal rendering of the Greek reads, and Greek is a highly inflected language. The end of a word tells you the grammatical function. The syntax of the sentence is primarily for rhetorical emphasis, where you place the word in the sentence. And the word placed at the front of the sentence is a place of emphasis. They say, literally, in the syntax of the words, 
we of fornication have not been born. You see what they're telling him? They know this story. They know this history. In this part of the world, you can't be born this way without everyone knowing it. This dogs him the rest of his life and Mary. And they throw it in his face, even now, even now. Well, Mary has all these things to think about. But the big immediate problem is telling Joseph. Joseph loved Mary. They were engaged to be married well before any of these events transpire in our story. And they certainly both had expectations of the kind of life they would lead together. Mary said yes to Christ, but she hasn't conferred with Joseph, and Joseph knows nothing about it. So she has to tell him what's happened. She has to tell him, I'm pregnant. And Joseph knows it's not by him. How would he feel? He would have felt betrayed. He would have felt heartbroken. Perhaps she said, well, an angel came to me and I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit and I'm going to give birth to the Son of God. Well, can't you just hear that one going over, right? (laughs) And even if he believed it, the whole expectation they had for their lives is over. No. We read in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. How does Joseph react? Her husband Joseph was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace because he had every right under the Mosaic law we saw in Genesis, uh, in uh, Deuteronomy 22, that he could accuse her, he could have her taken to the town gate and stoned to death. That was his right under the Mosaic law. And most men would have done exactly that. It is a fundamental betrayal in this time and culture that you simply did not do. But he loves her. She told him, And I suspect he went into some seclusion trying to understand what happened. How could he accept her as a wife? Everyone in this little town of Nazareth would know that she was pregnant by someone other than him and it would be utterly shameful to marry such a person. And if he did, what would their life be like in this little town? I don't want her stoned to death. I love her. And he must have wept and wept and struggled with this and lay awake at night. And he certainly would have conferred with the rabbi at the synagogue in Nazareth. We know there's a synagogue there because in Luke chapter 4, Jesus preaches in the synagogue at Nazareth. That rabbi would have been the one that would have married Mary and Joseph. Everybody in that little town thought they were a lovely couple. And now this news comes out. 
he spoke with the rabbi. And the rabbi said, I, I know you're heartbroken. I know this is a very difficult thing for you. And Joseph said, well, what are my options? And the rabbi would have said, well, according to the law, you can accuse her, she will be found guilty, and she will be stoned to death. And that would relieve the shame that you've been exposed to. He doesn't want to do that. Now, there is another option. We could do this quietly. We could arrange for the engagement to be dissolved. You can divorce her quietly. Divorce her in the sense that this engagement is now over and the wedding is not going to happen. We can do that quietly. It will take time. I'll have to confer with the rabbis in Jerusalem. We'll have to go through the proper paperwork. It will take some time. But it can be done quietly. In the meantime, of course, she'll have to leave. The town would never accept her. And that's what Joseph decided to do. He did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. So she leaves. She can't stay there. She can't be with him. She can't be in this little town. And where can she go? She can't go home to her parents. That would, be, that would bring disgrace on her family and shame on her family. Where can she possibly go? Well, don't lose your place in Matthew, but turn back to Luke 1 at verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. She leaves Nazareth by herself and she goes to the home of Elizabeth and Zechariah. Elizabeth is a relative. Now Mary would have been, well, it's anyone's guess, but typically a girl would be married at 15, 16 years old. So think of her at that age, 15, 16 years old. Joseph is another question. Uh, he appears to be older than Mary uh, only because we meet Mary and Joseph and Jesus when Jesus is 12 years old. All the three of them are together. After the event at 12 years old, the next time we see Jesus, he's 30 years old and about to begin his public ministry. Mary is present, but Joseph has left our story. He's dropped out of the story. So presumably Joseph died sometime between when Jesus was 12 and 30, which suggests that he may have been older. Not necessarily, however. He could have been killed in a construction accident or had a heart attack. Who knows? But uh, presumably Joseph is somewhat older, and that's usually the case in the Middle East. We were at a wedding in Istanbul uh, just a few weeks, well, almost a month back now. And in Istanbul, in, as in much of the, of the Middle East, uh, at the wedding, the bride was 25 years old, uh, the groom was 37. And that was not uncommon at all. Women typically marry in their early to mid-20s, men in their 30s, you know, toward their middle 30s. Because when a man asks a woman to marry him, 
he has to be able to provide for her. And when our friend Farid married Nurai, when he asked her father for her hand in marriage, he had to have a home bought and ready for her to move in. And all the furnishings there, it all had to be there. Otherwise, why would the father allow his daughter to marry a ne'er-do-well? So it takes a while for a young man to graduate from college, begin a career, and acquire the material wealth that he needs that would enable him to ask a nice girl to marry him, and the family agree. So the marriages tend to be women in their early to mid-20s, men in their mid-30s or so, by the time they're established a bit. And you could see that perhaps here as well. Joseph had a career, and he would have been able to provide a home, so he would be somewhat older. He wouldn't be another 15, 16-year-old boy, but someone uh, a bit older. How much older is anyone's guess? The idea and the popular picture we have of Joseph being a much older man uh, is, well, tradition play, uh, coming into play because he does die sometime between Jesus being 12 and 30. Doesn't mean he died of old age, but he drops out of the picture during that time. So Mary went to Elizabeth. There was nowhere else to go. Now picture the scene in Nazareth. As she tells Joseph, and Joseph being distraught, Joseph struggling with what to do, and he decides to divorce her quietly. So she really does have to leave town. You can't stay there in a small town under these conditions. You've got to leave. So Mary packed her bag, and she left the house, and she looked back at Joseph with tears in her eyes, and he with tears in his eyes, because neither one of them thought they would ever see the other ever again. And Mary is going off to a very uncertain future. And she's a young girl, 15, 16 years old. And Joseph watched her walk down the road, little blue suitcase in hand, all by herself, and disappear over the ridge line. It's the last we'll ever see of her, he thought. He closed the door, he sat in his chair, and he wept. Meanwhile, she made the journey of a little over 100 miles to the home of Elizabeth and Zechariah. Turn back now to Luke chapter 1. Don't lose Matthew 1. She knocked on the door. And Elizabeth answered the door. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Why, as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. Notice that the six months in solitude that Elizabeth has spent and the six months in silence that Zachariah has spent, they've come to understand the plan. They understand their place in this plan of salvation. 
And when Mary arrives at their front door, it truly is the only place she could go. Elizabeth and Zachariah are the only two people in the entire world who would understand this. Mary said, now when she left Nazareth and walked to the hill country north of Jerusalem, she would have left Nazareth, she would have come down off the Nazareth Ridge, across the Jezreel Valley, there's a linking road from the King's Highway to the Via Maris, the two major trade routes, that runs right through the southern portion of the Jezreel Valley to an area called Beit Shan. It's a fording place across the Jordan River. She would have forded over at Beit Shan, paralleled the Jordan River on the east side to Jericho, crossed back over at Jericho, gone up a 17.3-mile road built by the Romans to the Mount of Olives, and then headed north to the little village where Elizabeth and Zachariah lived. I've made that journey. I haven't walked it, but I've driven it, and it's about 103 miles, a little bit over 100 miles. And uh, Mary would have done that by herself. She's a young girl with a, having left the life that she expected, heading to a life that is a total unknown, and she is all by herself, and she's pregnant. What must she be feeling and thinking as she walked that journey? A hundred miles. Typically, for an adult male traveling with a purpose, you cover about 30 miles a day. Uh, think of it. Uh, your walk, a purposeful walk, is about three miles an hour. If you get up in the morning, have breakfast, walk until lunchtime, uh, and then have lunch, walk till dinner time, you're covering about 10 hours at three miles per hour, is about 30 miles. But a young girl, and one would have to imagine rather distraught, thinking, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? How am I going to live? How will I raise this child? Thinking all those things, and she is totally on her own at this point, what is she thinking during the journey? I, I suspect that she may have covered five, six miles a day maybe. So she has a good week in which she's traveling and thinking all the while. She is not a happy, joyous person right now. Her life with Joseph is now over, and her future is very uncertain. She, too, is struggling in silence on this journey. But by the end of the journey, she has come to an understanding. And she says in verse 46, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Now that seems to me the statement of great faith. Mary's response in saying yes is a statement of great courage. Here's the statement of great faith. Moving into a very uncertain future, 
I am putting my total trust in God. He will do what he said he will do. And Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. The Annunciation occurs in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Mary goes to Elizabeth and stays three months, so that tells you that she stayed until the birth of John the Baptist. And then what will she do? I would like to have been present during that three months to hear the conversation between Elizabeth and Mary. Now, Elizabeth is an older woman. Remember, Zachariah and Elizabeth are well along in years. So Elizabeth is a relative, perhaps Mary's grandmother's sister, okay? but a relative, an older relative, who has pondered these things now for six months in seclusion with Zachariah in seclusion and silence as well. And they have come to some understanding of the plan. Wouldn't you like to sit around the kitchen table with Mary and Elizabeth for those three months? Elizabeth helped Mary understand what she needed to do. And at the end, after John is born, Elizabeth said, you have to go back to Joseph. How can I go back to Joseph? I haven't seen him in three months. I don't know that he'd even want me back. I brought shame upon him. How can I go back to that little town? I'm three months pregnant. They talked, and Mary finally agreed. All right, I'll go back. And that's what she does. She walks all that way, another 103 miles back to Nazareth. Meanwhile, Joseph has spent three months coming to terms with losing Mary and having no idea. It's not like he can text her or email her, right? <laughs> having no idea where she is or what she's doing or how she's doing. And I can only imagine during that three-month period the grief that he must have gone through, the suffering he must have gone through, and the pain he must have gone through from a broken heart. One night, he was sitting in the chair, having just watched the Jay Leno monologue, <laughs> and he fell asleep. And we read in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, after he had considered the quiet divorce, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. He falls asleep, and Gabriel appears in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then Joseph woke up. Oh. And he suddenly realizes. The, the epiphany. The light bulb came on. Now I understand. Oh God, I've lost her. She left three months ago. I don't even know where she is. Now he knows and she's gone. What am I going to do? 
oh Lord, please help me. A knock at the front door. And Joseph opened the door. And there's Mary with her little blue suitcase, pregnant. Right? Oh, Mary. And they hug each other and the hankies come out and she goes in. I would love to have been there during that time. And we read in Matthew chapter 1, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Notice in our story to this point, Zachariah has been plunged into silence and seclusion. Elizabeth has been plunged into silence and seclusion. Mary has been in silence and seclusion on her journey to Elizabeth. And Joseph has been in silence and seclusion. Notice Joseph. In all of Scripture, he has not a single line to speak. Joseph never speaks in any of the Gospels. He's silent. And you wonder what he could be thinking. Well, he takes Mary home as his wife. Now, turn back to Luke. Chapter 2, at verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus, the emperor in Rome, issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman Empire. This, parenthetically, was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Rome would take a census periodically, just as we take a census every 10 years. Why does a government take a census? Why do you count up the people? Well, so you can do your financial planning as a government. You need to know, you need to be able to project your tax revenue based upon the number of people, and you need to project your expenses given that tax revenue, and you need a census to do that. So a census would be a regular event in the Roman Empire, just as it is in our day. This was not the first census ever taken. This is the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, there's no other record of this census, but clearly we're told precisely when it occurs, the first census during uh, the, the governorship of Quirinius in Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. Now, don't think mass migration everybody moving around and going from one place to another. People didn't move in these days. You were born in a town, you grew up in the town, you got married in the town, you lived in the town, and you died in the town. A person would be known, you, you didn't have a last name, you'd simply be known, Jesus would have been known as Jesus bar Joseph, Jesus son of Joseph. Well, that would have no meaning if nobody knew who Joseph was, right? He's Jesus, son of Joseph. And of course, everybody knew Joseph the carpenter in Nazareth. It's a small town. If someone actually left town and moved away, which was quite unusual, they would be known, not well, when Jesus moved to Capernaum. How was he known there? Jesus, son of Joseph? They would say, Joseph who? No, he was known as Jesus 
of Nazareth, of the place where he was from. When Paul moved from Tarsus in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, on the southeastern corner of the Met- northeastern corner of the Mediterranean, Paul moved from Tarsus to Jerusalem to study with the great rabbis in Jerusalem. He was known as Paul, uh, Saul of Tarsus. So when you move, you're identified with the town you came from. That's how unusual it was for someone to move. And uh, later on, uh, well, maybe there are a lot of you, there are a lot of Sauls of Tarsus. So rather than being of Tarsus, uh, your occupation would provide your identification. Jesus, perhaps, Jesus, son of Joseph, when he went to Capernaum, Jesus of Nazareth, and had he lived a long time, maybe he would have become known as Jesus the carpenter or simply Jesus Carpenter. That's how we get last names, by places and trades. Carpenter, baker, you can see the point. Well, it wasn't common for people to move. So when a census is taken, those who did move had to register in their town of origin. And that's not unusual. We do the same thing. When you vote, unless you do an absentee ballot, you have to vote in the precinct where you're registered. Right? I teach in San Diego on Tuesdays, but I'm registered in the precinct up in Westwood near UCLA. So I have to either cancel class so I can vote or do an absentee ballot. Well, in the Roman Empire, you couldn't do an absentee ballot. You simply had to go and register. So that's what Joseph is going to do. Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. Joseph is a descendant of David. And Matthew gives us his genealogy. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right down to David. David to Solomon through the kings to the Babylonian captivity. Then Zerubbabel, who wasn't a king, but he was in the royal line and he became governor after the Babylonian captivity, down to Joseph. The genealogy in Matthew gives us Jesus' legal claim to the throne of Israel from David through the kings to Joseph. Joseph is Jesus' legal father, giving him the legal claim to the throne of Israel. So Joseph goes back to Bethlehem because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting her child. Mary has to make the journey to Bethlehem, which, same route, off the, uh, the Nazareth Ridge, across the Jezreel Valley, ford over at Beit Shan, parallel the Jordan River to Jericho, cross back over Jericho, up the 17.3-mile road to Jerusalem, and then seven kilometers south to Bethlehem. And she's nine months pregnant. How'd she get there? Well, clearly she did not ride on a donkey. Anybody ever ridden a donkey? No, I don't want to do that. Donkeys are small. Donkeys have high backbones. And if you ever ride a donkey, it's like riding a motorcycle with knobby tires down the freeway. You bounce along. That's not a good animal to ride. Donkeys were not used for riding. They were used for carrying cargo or pulling carts. I I would guess that she rode on a cart, 
pulled by a donkey, along with the luggage on the cart as well, probably sitting on several pillows because the springs in the cart weren't all that great on the Roman roads. So off she went to Bethlehem. Now, think of her expectations. When she said yes to Gabriel, what would her expectations be about the birth of this child? I don't think she expected she would ride a hundred miles on a donkey cart before giving birth. Now, if she wasn't about to give birth when she left, after riding a hundred miles on a donkey cart, she most certainly was. And that's what happens. While they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to a firstborn son, uh, to her firstborn, a son, and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now we have to pause on this. Mary makes the journey all the way to Bethlehem. Now, they don't stay at an inn like a holiday inn, right? In this day, when you're traveling, you would travel, you would stay at night at a caravan stop. Now, we have a good illustration of caravan stops when we travel to Turkey. We travel to Turkey every year. We'll be going March 27th of 2010. And when we're in Turkey, in the interior, we're doing the footsteps of Paul in Turkey. And in, as we follow the first missionary journey to Pisidian Antioch, which is in the interior, and then we go eastward to Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. At Iconium, uh, we have a, a, a real treat there. Uh, that city, Iconium, where Paul had been uh, in Islam, is a very important center for Islam. Every major religion has a mystical component of the religion. Uh, in Judaism, uh, the mystical component is the Kabbalah. It's a kind of mystical form of Judaism. In Christianity, it's the mysticism of St. John of the Cross uh, in the late Middle Ages. Uh, in Islam, the mystical movement in Islam is the whirling dervishes. Uh, the whirling dervishes are a mystical sect of Islam that develops in the late Middle Ages. And we go to uh, a folklore center outside of Iconium that used to be, in the Middle Ages, a caravan stop on the Silk Route. And we go there, number one, to see the whirling dervishes. Now, you can go to Las Vegas and see whirling dervishes, but that's a show, right? What we go to is a religious ceremony, and it is a profoundly moving ceremony. And it's, a, it's very much a mystical kind of uh, experience. It's held at what is now a folklore center outside of Iconium. But the second reason to go there is to see what a caravan stop would look like. We pull up, it's, it's rather about an hour outside of Iconium uh, on a very isolated kind of road today, but it has a walled enclosure. On the walls are, oh, I would say maybe three stories high and quite thick with a big solid wooden door, a pair of wooden doors that open up that you can bring a bus through, okay? So they're big doors and they're barred on the inside. That protects people in the caravan stop from bad guys getting in. So as people would travel on the Silk Route, much like in California, the missions are one day's horseback distance between, 
the caravan stops were one day's journey between. So you would travel from caravan stop to caravan stop. When you would arrive, the gates would be open, and you would come into a big courtyard. The courtyard is where you would stay. It's an open-air courtyard. And most of the year, the weather's pretty decent. So you would stay in the courtyard. You would bring your animals in. Uh, you would find your place in the courtyard, uh, get everything arranged, get the luggage off the, off the animals. The people who run the caravan stop would care for the animals. They would provide food for them. And all the other people who were stopping there are also in the courtyard. And along the edges of the courtyard are not shops, but functional rooms. One would be a kitchen where they make the food to serve the people at the stop. Another would be a blacksmith shop to take care of the animals' uh, needs and to repair harnesses and that sort of thing. Uh, another would be a feed uh, shop where the feed inventory would be for the animals. So all the practical things you need were in these little side rooms. At the end of the far end of the courtyard, and the courtyard would be about uh, that caravan stop, it's about the width of this sanctuary, this much square. So I don't know, that would be how many feet? Uh, maybe a, a hundred feet or so square. And at the far end is an indoor area, much smaller, but were it terrain, you could squeeze the people in there, leave the animals outside. But typically, you were out in the courtyard in the open air with the stars over your head, and the meals would be served in the courtyard, and everybody would socialize, and, and it would be a fine time had by all. When it came time for bed, you get your bedroll out, lie down, everybody slept out there in the courtyard. In the morning, sun comes up, breakfast is served, everyone packs up, and off they go. That's the kind of inn we're talking about. So Mary and Joseph show up at the caravan stop, and they're going to stay in the courtyard. Now, if you were Mary, and you were about to give birth, would you want to do so in front of 200 other people? <laughs> of course not. So I would bet that when they got to the caravan stop, Mary is saying, we have to get there right now because I am going to have this baby. And Joseph got there, and he said to the manager of the caravan stop, uh, my wife is pregnant, she's about to give birth, and can you help us out? And I see this innkeeper, not as some bad fellow, there's no room here, go out behind, as being a very caring person. And I think he would have said, of course. said, she certainly doesn't want to give birth here in front of 200 people in the courtyard. My private stable is out behind my wife would be happy to help as a midwife. Come, let me take you around the back where you'll have privacy and, someone can, and my wife can help you. And I think that's exactly what they did. So she gave birth out there in the back in the stable. Could have been a cave. It could have been a little building. But in a stable where his animals were kept. And she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and placed him in a manger. Remember your high school French? The verb manger is to eat. She placed him in a feeding trough, wrapped up in blankets, because there was no room at the inn. Not there wasn't room available, but you certainly want, didn't want to have this event occur in front of everybody. 
saw there was no place for her in the courtyard. That was not the proper place to do this. So I, I see the innkeeper. I think he'll, when we get to heaven, he's going to be owed an apology by a whole lot of people. <laughs> so now picture Mary lying there on the straw with a blanket under her, having just given birth, the baby in the feeding trough, and Joseph standing there, the midwife, the innkeeper's wife, uh, with her, and Mary looking about, and here are sheep and goats looking at her, and she's looking at the baby in the feeding trough. And I don't know about you, but if I were Mary, and I knew that I was going to give birth to the Son of God, I would have been, I think I would not have expected a hundred mile donkey ride and giving birth in a stable with animals looking on and a feeding trough for a crib. You would think that if God were going to bring his son into the world, he could arrange a suite at Cedar Sinai. You know? <laughs> oh, this is not what she expected at all. Well, camera cuts, verse 8. Now, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. When you drive from Jerusalem into Bethlehem, it's about a seven-kilometer drive, and you get into Bethlehem, headed south, on the left-hand side, the cliffs drop down to a field below. That field is where the story of Ruth takes place in the book of Ruth, and it's also where the shepherds were watching their flocks in Bethlehem. So they're down in the valley, and they're watching their flocks at night. And suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terrified. And the angel said, as angels always do, fear not. I bring you great good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born. He is Christ the Lord. The Messiah has been born. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a feeding trough. Well, that shouldn't be too difficult to find. Bethlehem is not a big city. It's a little village. And there's only one caravan stop. And there's only one little stable out behind. So they can find this pretty easily. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and check it out. So they do. They hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph rather easily and the baby who was lying in the manger. The shepherds show up. Now you're Mary lying there having just given birth and strangers come. Now, shepherds are not on the high end of the socioeconomic scale. <laughs> shepherds, in fact, are at the bottom of the socioeconomic scale. If you are a shepherd keeping watch over flocks at night, that is about the lowest job you can possibly get. That's like being you know, the night watchman at a junkyard off on the side of town somewhere. These are not reputable people. These are, in fact, shepherds had a, not a good reputation. And they showed up. 
And Mary's looking at that and the feeding trough. <laughs> Lord. <laughs> oh. And we read in verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things or gathered them up and pondered them in her heart. Now, I had always read that as being, a, you know, gathering up all these things and embracing them and uh, cherishing them. No, not at all. The word pondered, the Greek word, it's written in Greek, is symbolion. The root of the word is the verb balo, which is to throw. It's a very turbulent word. It's a violent word and a turbulent word. Mary gathered all these things up, and I would translate it, and wrestled with them or struggled with them in her heart. These were not her expectations, and she's struggling with these things. Now, on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, in Genesis, when God makes his covenant with Abraham, he gives circumcision as a badge of the covenant. <clears throat> circumcision is to a Jew what baptism is to a Christian. It incorporates a person into the covenant community. It's an outward sign of a covenant people. And God said in Genesis that every male Israelite child shall be circumcised on the eighth day. So Mary and Joseph, being pious Jews, took Jesus to the temple where he would be circumcised and then they would present him. On the eighth day, uh, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. And when the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, that is, we read in Leviticus, that when a woman gives birth to a male child, for 40 days, she has no obligations at all for housework, for community work, for anything. It's a 40-day period during which she bonds with that child. At the end of the 40-day period, she goes through a ritual purification and a reintroduction back into daily life. But during that period, it's her and the child. And that's quite a nice thing. If it's a female child, it's an 80-day period. Now, I would think it would be the opposite. But I suspect, now I don't have any, I have two sons. I'm the oldest of all brothers, and even the dog and cat are boys. I know absolutely nothing about girls, right? But I would expect that the relationship between a mother and a daughter is a rather intimate relationship, and God recognizes that. He gives a 40-day period for the mother and son to bond, an 80-day period for the mother and the daughter. I think there's something quite lovely about that. And then at the end, there's a ritual purification and a reintroduction back into the community. So at the end of 40 days, when the time of purification came, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. It's only seven kilometers away. Uh, you can't see the temple from Bethlehem, but you can hear it. You can hear the operations, the trumpet sounding, and so on. So they took him to the temple to present him to the Lord. As it is written, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice that went with that consecration 
in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, in Leviticus, we read that when this dedication occurs and the purification of the mother, that a sacrifice is made. A sacrifice can be a bull, which is a pretty expensive animal. It can be a goat or it can be a lamb. They're animal sacrifices, bull, goat, or lamb, all of which are expensive in descending order. But if you can't afford a lamb, then you can offer as a sacrifice two doves or two pigeons. Well, anybody can get a pigeon. You take a shoe box, a stick, a piece of string, and some peanut butter, you got a pigeon, right? <laughs> it's, the, uh, it's the offering for poor people. The only way we know that Mary and Joseph were poor people is from this offering. It's the offering for poor people who can't afford a lamb or a goat or a bull. So they offer a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, to do this, to, to have this ritual take place and the purification, you can't just show up at the temple and nab a priest. It's like having a baptism at a church. You have to make arrangements because you have to have the sacrifice there. You have to go through the ritual. You need the priest to do that with you. So you have to make arrangements. And Joseph and Mary would have done that. Perhaps right after Jesus was born, a week or so later, Joseph would have gone to Jerusalem to the appropriate office and scheduled the ceremony. And then they show up for the ceremony. And I make a point of that because it would be a practical reality of getting this done, but it also tells us something else. At verse 25, when they arrived, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ, Messiah. He won't die before he sees the Messiah. So, moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, that is, dedicating him and Mary's purification, Simeon took the child in his arms and praised God. Now, I have to ask, and we're going to meet another character here, Anna who is an old woman. She's over in chapter 2 at verse 36. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old, and she had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. So Simeon and Anna, both old people, are there at the temple, and they're both convinced that they won't die until they've seen the Messiah. Why would they have that conviction? Well... Turn with me, with me to Daniel chapter 9. Turn left. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Daniel chapter 9. And this is a pretty remarkable thing. Daniel chapter 9 at verse 1. The story of Daniel is set during the period 605 to 539. And in Daniel chapter 9 we read, in the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures 
according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, 538 B.C., I, Daniel, understood that the captivity, the Babylonian captivity, would last 70 years. Well, Daniel is taken into captivity in 605 in the first wave of captives. It's now 538. So if the captivity is 70 years, and it started in 605, and it's now 538, three more years, we're going home. So Daniel prays. And it's a great prayer that he has here. And he prays for the restoration of Jerusalem and the restoration of the people in Jerusalem. When he finishes praying, chapter 9, verse 20, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, that is Jerusalem, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, there he is again, Gabriel, the man I had seen earlier in chapter 8, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given regarding the restoration of the people in Jerusalem, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed in heaven. Wouldn't it be nice to have the angel Gabriel show up at your front door and say, Joyce, you are highly esteemed in heaven. That would be nice. Well, as Daniel is praying, when he finishes the prayer, he opens his eyes, there's Gabriel, just like Zechariah. There's Gabriel. He said, uh, Gabriel said to him, as you began to pray, I was sent by God to give you this message. Now, if you read this prayer in Hebrew that begins at verse 4 and ends at verse 19, it will take you about three minutes to read it in Hebrew, which, as a footnote, tells us Daniel is in Susa, which is modern, just north of the Persian Gulf today. It tells you, as a footnote, that when Daniel began to pray, Gabriel was dispatched from heaven, and when Daniel finished praying, Gabriel was there. Heaven is three minutes by angel flight. Is that good? No. But what does he tell him? Look at verse 23. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the Hebrew word is Messiah, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens, that is seven sets of seven years, or 49 years, and 62 sevens, or 434, for a total of 483 years. So from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah comes, there will be 483 years. If we only knew when that decree took place, we could start the clock. Well, we do. Nehemiah chapter 2. I'm testing you now, moving around. Nehemiah chapter 2. And I'll read it to you. Chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, that's the month of Passover, 
in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. That would be March, April, 445 B.C. When wine was brought for him, I, Nehemiah, took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? Why, this could be nothing but sadness of heart. Well, I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? It is March, April, month of Passover, 445 B.C. The Babylonian captivity ended in 539 B.C. when Cyrus the Great conquers Persia and allows the Jews to go home. They begin rebuilding the temple in 538. It's dedicated in 516. But the city is still lying in ruins in 445. No one's rebuilt the city. They're all living outside of it. So the king asked me, what, do you want? what is it you want? Well, I prayed to the Lord and I said, answer the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. And King Artaxerxes, king of Persia, issues this decree that allows Nehemiah to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city, which he does for the rest of the book of Nehemiah. So the decree is issued in the month of Passover, 445 B.C. Start the clock and count out 483 years from that start point and it will bring you to Passover A.D. 32, the exact time Jesus rides into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. Doesn't that blow you away? Why were there so many people when he rode into Jerusalem on Passover, tens of thousands of people greeting him and proclaiming him Messiah? Because everybody knew Daniel 9. Everybody expected it. There was a huge messianic expectation because of Daniel 9. Everybody knew it. Well, so does Simeon and Anna. They know this prophecy. And Simeon thought to himself, well, let's see. If the Messiah makes himself public at the time frame Daniel gives us, he will be probably about 30 years old because a priest assumes his full duties at 30 years old. So he'll probably be about 30. Now, if I count backward, that means he'll be born a, within a window of three to five years. Now, he'll be born of, pi of a pious family, and on the time when he is dedicated, they will bring him to the temple, and they will have him dedicated to God, and his mother will be purified. So if A.D. 32 is the time when the Messiah will come, then go back 30 years or so, and those, that family will walk into the temple within about a three-year window of time. Now, if you're Simeon, how many dedications went on at the temple? Certainly not hundreds a day. It's like how many baptisms went on in this church in the last month? You know, it's a limited number, and you can look it up because you have to make a reservation to do it. 
So Simeon would simply show up at the office on uh, Monday morning. We've got three this week. And he'd just show up for them and wait. And he was convinced he would recognize them. And sure enough, in walks Mary and Joseph, and Simeon recognized them. How so? They all had these halos over their head when they walked in. (laughs) He recognizes them. And he approaches her, he, he asks to hold the child, and he says in Luke 2, verse 29, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, now you dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Well, Mary and Joseph marveled at what was said. That is, that this old man would know this. And then Simeon blessed them. And he said to Mary, handing the child back, congratulations on giving birth to such a fine child. No, listen. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against. So the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Oh, and by the way, A sword will pierce your soul, too. This child will break your heart. What a thing to say to his mother. Anna came over, and she recognizes him as well. And Mary gathered up all these things and struggled with them in her heart. And in verse 39... When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong and was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. He grew up like any ordinary little boy would grow up in a little town called Nazareth. Mary, in the evenings, would go to the well. Every town and village had to have a fresh water source, The well was the center of town. And all the women in the evening would go to the well to draw water for the next day for breakfast and getting the day going. And Mary would meet her friends there. They would all chat. The children would play. They'd ride their tricycles around and then have a good time. And Jesus would grow up in Nazareth, like Opie growing up in Mayberry, you know, (laughs) and do all the things that little boys do. We meet him again in verse 41. They went to Jerusalem for Passover when Jesus was 12 years old. At 12 years old, what happens to a Jewish boy at 12 years old? Bar mitzvah, right? Bar, son, mitzvah, commandments. You become a son of the commandments. You've learned to read and write. You You can't be a people of the book if you can't read and write the book. And you demonstrate your ability to read the book. And at that point, you are now responsible to God for your relationship with him. We see Jesus doing that. And then in chapter 3, he's 30 years old and begins his public ministry. So I see Jesus growing up in that little town, learning to read and write at the feet of the rabbi. Uh, Certainly, he would learn to read and write. Every Jewish male could read and write. Literacy among Jews in this day, and all days for that matter, is nearly universal. You can't be a people of the book if you can't read the book. In fact, the Talmud says that a Jew who can't read has been taken captive by the Gentiles. Doesn't say much about us. But 
Jesus would have learned to read and write. He would have gone to the synagogue every Sabbath with his family, and he would have grown up like any little boy did. We have no stories about that time, but, well, you can make them up in your mind and imagine Jesus growing up in that little town. So, we have the Christmas story. Jesus coming into the world. The very beginning of the story, Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created. And we found from Genesis 1, verse 1, all the way up to Matthew, that the plans were being laid. In Genesis 3, verse 15, the first foreshadowing that one would come who would resolve the conflict of sin. And as the plan unfolds, Matthew takes us through it in the genealogy, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right on down the line, to David, to the Babylonian captivity, to Joseph, to the birth of Christ. It's a straight linear narrative. God had this plan in mind before Genesis 1, verse 1, and he carried it out precisely the way he said he would. It tells us something about God's faithfulness. It also tells us something about the faith that we're called to have. Mary is the example of that faith. Not only the courage to say yes, but the faith to trust God. When she left Nazareth and went over the hill and disappeared into the distance, she was walking into a very uncertain future. The only way she could cope with that future was to depend utterly and totally upon God. That's the great statement of faith. When she gets to Elizabeth's house and understands this, she's a model of faith for all of us. So the story begins. The gospel story would come next. Who Christ is and what he did. He is the virgin-born, sinless son of God who took our sin upon himself. He paid the penalty for that sin before a holy and righteous God, enabling our salvation. We are saved, not by the love of God. The love of God never saved anyone. The love of God is the motive for our salvation. But the operative action of our salvation is the shed blood of Christ on the cross. He died on that cross in our place, on our behalf, paying the penalty for our sin before a holy and righteous God. Advent, we celebrate his coming into the world. Lent, we begin to celebrate what he does for us on the cross. It's a grand theme, the greatest story ever told. It's nice to get together for a few hours and think about it. It's especially nice to do it at the beginning of Advent. So I thank you all for being here. We hope you've enjoyed The Christmas Story with Dr. Creasy, recorded live at St. Peter's-by-the-Sea Presbyterian Church in Huntington Beach, California. For more of Dr. Creasy's teaching, log on to the global classroom of LogosBibleStudy.org, the most comprehensive, in-depth Bible teaching on the planet. That's LogosBibleStudy.org. See you there.